1: Chapter 18 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18. One. She hurried to the first meeting of the Play Reading Committee. Her jungle romance had faded, but she retained a religious fervor, a surge of half formed thought about the creation of beauty by suggestion. A Dunsany play would be too difficult for the Gopher Prairie Association. She would let them compromise on Shaw, on Androcles and the Lion, which had just been published. The committee was composed of Carol, Vida Sherwin, Guy Pollock, Ramy Weatherspoon, and Juanita Haydock. They were exalted by the picture of themselves as being simultaneously businesslike and artistic. They were entertained by Vida in the parlor of Mrs. Elisha Gurry's boarding house with its steel engraving of Grant at Appomattox, its basket of stereoscopic views, and its mysterious stains on the gritty carpet. Vida was an advocate of culture buying and efficiency systems. She hinted that they ought to have, as at the committee meetings of the Thanatopsis, a regular order of business and the reading of the minutes, but as there were no minutes to read, and as no one knew exactly what was the regular order of the business of being literary they had to give up efficiency. Carol, as chairman, said politely, ''Have you any ideas about what play we'd better give first?'' She waited for them to look abashed and vacant, so that she might suggest Androcles. Guy Pollock answered with disconcerting readiness, ''I'll tell you, since we're going to try to do something artistic, and not simply fool around, I believe we ought to give something classic. How about The School for Scandal?'' Why don't you think that has been done a good deal? Yes, perhaps it has." Carol was ready to say, ''How about Bernard Shaw?'' when he treacherously went on, ''How would it be, then, to give a Greek drama, say, Oedipus Tyrannus?'' ''Why, I don't believe,'' Vita Sherwin intruded, ''I'm sure that would be too hard for us. Now, I've brought something that I think would be awfully jolly. She held out, and Carol incredulously took a thin grey pamphlet entitled McGinnerty's mother-in-law. It was the sort of farce which is advertised in school entertainment catalogues as Rip Roaring Knockout five male, three female, time two hours, interior set, popular with churches and all high class occasions. Carol glanced from the scabrous object to Vida and realized that she was not joking. But this This is—this is—why, it's just a—why, Vida, I thought you appreciated—well, appreciated art." Vida snorted. Oh! Art! Oh, yes, I do like art. It's very nice. But after all, what does it matter what kind of play we give as long as we get the association started? The thing that matters is something that none of you have spoken of, that is, what are we going to do with the money if we make any? I think it would be awfully nice if we presented the high school with a full set of Stoddard's travel lectures." Carol moaned. Oh, but, Vida, dear, do forgive me, but this farce.... Now what I'd like us to give is something distinguished. Say, Shaw's Androcles. Have any of you read it?" Yes, good play," said Guy Pollock. Then Ramy Weatherspoon astoundingly spoke up. So have I. I read through all the plays in the public library, so's to be ready for this meeting. And—'But I don't believe you grasp the irreligious ideas in this androcles, Mrs. Kennicott. I guess the feminine mind is too innocent to understand all these immoral writers. I'm sure I don't want to criticize Bernard Shaw. I understand he is very popular with the highbrows in Minneapolis, but just the same. As far as I can make out, he's downright improper. The things he says... well, it would be a very risky thing for our young folks to see. It seems to me that a play that doesn't leave a nice taste in the mouth and that hasn't any message is nothing but... nothing but... well, whatever it may be, it isn't art. So, now I've found a play that is clean and there's some awfully funny scenes in it, too." I laughed out loud reading it. It's called His Mother's Heart, and it's about a young man in college who gets in with a lot of freethinkers and boozers and everything. But in the end, his mother's influence—' Juanita Haydock broke in with a derisive, "'Oh, rats, Ramey! Can the mother's influence! I say, let's give something with class to it. I bet we could get the rights to The Girl from Kankakee, and that's a real show. It ran for eleven months in New York. That would be lots of fun, if it wouldn't cost too much," reflected Vida. Carol's was the only vote cast against the girl from Kankakee. 2. She disliked the girl from Kankakee even more than she had expected. It narrated the success of a farm lassie in clearing her brother of a charge of forgery. She became secretary to a New York millionaire and social counsellor to his wife and after a well-conceived speech on the discomfort of having money, she married his son. There was also a humorous office boy. Carol discerned that both Juanita Haydock and Ella Stowbody wanted the lead. She let Juanita have it. Juanita kissed her, and in the exuberant manner of a new star, presented to the executive committee her theory, what we want in a play is humor and pep. That's where American playwrights put it all over these darn old European glooms!" As selected by Carroll and confirmed by the committee, the persons of the play were— John Grimm, a millionaire, Guy Pollock. His wife, Miss Vita Sherwin. His son, Dr. Harvey Dillon. His business rival, Raymond T. Weatherspoon, Friend of Mrs. Grimm, Miss Ella Stowbody. The girl from Kankakee. Mrs. Harold C. Haydock, her brother, Dr. Terence Gould, her mother, Mrs. David Dyer, stenographer, Miss Rita Simons, office-boy, Miss Myrtle Cass, maid in the Grimm's home, Mrs. W. P. Kennicott. Direction of Mrs. Kennicott. Among the minor lamentations was Maud Dyer's, well, of course I suppose I'd look old enough to be Juanita's mother even if Juanita is eight months older than I am, but I don't know as I care to have everybody noticing it, and," Carol pleaded, "'Oh, my dear, you two look exactly the same age. I chose you because you have such a darling complexion, and you know with powder and a white wig anybody looks twice her age, and I want the mother to be sweet, no matter who else is.' Ella Stowbody, the professional, perceiving that it was because of a conspiracy of jealousy that she had been given a small part, alternated between lofty amusement and Christian patience. Carol hinted that the play would be improved by cutting, but as every actor except Vida and Guy and herself wailed at the loss of a single line, she was defeated. She told herself that, after all, a great deal could be done with direction and settings, Sam Clark had boastfully written about the dramatic association to his schoolmate, Percy Bresnahan, president of the Velvet Motor Company of Boston. Bresnahan sent a check for a hundred dollars. Sam added twenty-five and brought the fund to Carol, fondly crying, "'There! That'll give you a start for putting the thing across swell!' She rented the second floor of the City Hall for two months. All through the spring the association thrilled to its own talent in that dismal room. They cleared out the bunting, ballot-boxes, handbills, legless chairs. They attacked the stage. It was a simple-minded stage. It was raised above the floor, and it did have a movable curtain, painted with the advertisement of a druggist dead these ten years, but otherwise it might have been recognized as a stage. There were two dressing-rooms, one for men, one for women, on either side. The dressing-room doors were also the stage entrances, opening from the house, and many a citizen of Gopher Prairie had for his first glimpse of romance the bare shoulders of the leading woman. There were three sets of scenery—a woodland, a poor interior and a rich interior, the last also useful for railway stations, offices and as a background for the Swedish quartet from Chicago. There were three gradations of lighting full on, half on and entirely off. This was the only theatre in Gopher Prairie. It was known as the Opera House. Once strolling companies had used it for performances of The Two Orphans and Nellie the Beautiful Cloak Model and Othello, with specialties between acts, but now the motion pictures had ousted the gypsy drama. Carol intended to be furiously modern in constructing the office set the drawing-room for Mr. Grimm and the humble home near Kankakee. It was the first time that anyone in Gopher Prairie had been so revolutionary as to use enclosed scenes with continuous side-walls. The rooms in the opera-house sets had separate wing-pieces for sides, which simplified dramaturgy, as the villain could always get out of the hero's way by walking out through the wall. The inhabitants of the humble home were supposed to be amiable and intelligent. Carol planned for them a simple set with warm color. She could see the beginning of the play, all dark save the high settles and the solid wooden table between them, which were to be illuminated by a ray from off stage. The high light was a polished copper pot filled with primroses. Less clearly she sketched the grim drawing-room as a series of cool, high-white arches. As to how she was to produce these effects, she had no notion. She discovered that, despite the enthusiastic young writers, the drama was not half so native and close to the soil as motor-cars and telephones. She discovered that simple arts require sophisticated training. She discovered that to produce one perfect stage picture would be as difficult as to turn all of Gopher Prairie into a Georgian garden. She read all she could find regarding staging. She bought paint and light wood. She borrowed furniture and drapes unscrupulously she made Kennicott turn carpenter. She collided with the problem of lighting. Against the protest of Kennicott and Vida, she mortgaged the association by sending to Minneapolis for a baby spotlight, a strip-light, a dimming device, and blue and amber bulbs. And with the gloating rapture of a born painter first turned loose among colors, she spent absorbed evenings in grouping, dimming, painting with lights. Only Kennicott, Guy and Vida helped her. They speculated as to how flats could be lashed together to form a wall, they hung crocus-yellow curtains at the windows, they blacked the sheet-iron stove, they put on aprons and swept. The rest of the association dropped into the theatre every evening and were literary and superior. They had borrowed Carol's manuals of play-production and had become extremely stagey in vocabulary. Juanita Haydock, Rita Simons and Ramy Wetherspoon sat on a sawhorse, watching Carol try to get the right position for a picture on the wall in the first scene. "'I don't want to hand myself anything, but I believe I'll give a swell performance in this first act,' confided Juanita. "'I wish Carol wasn't so bossy, though. She doesn't understand clothes. I want to wear—oh, a dandy dress I have, all scarlet, and I said to her—' When I enter, wouldn't it knock their eyes out if I just stood there at the door in this straight scarlet thing? But she wouldn't let me." Young Rita agreed. She's so much taken up with her old details and carpentering and everything that she can't see the picture as a whole. Now I thought it would be lovely if we had an office scene like the one in Little But Oh My, because I saw that in Duluth, but she simply wouldn't listen at all. Juanita sighed. I wanted to give one speech like Ethel Barrymore would, if she was in a play like this. Harry and I heard her one time in Minneapolis, we had dandy seats, in the orchestra. I just know I could imitate her. Carol didn't pay any attention to my suggestion. I don't want to criticize, but I guess Ethel knows more about acting than Carol does." Say, do you think Carol has the right dope about using a strip-light behind the fireplace in the second act? I told her I thought we ought to use a bunch," offered Ramy. "'And I suggested it would be lovely if we used a cyclorama outside the window in the first act. And what do you think?' she said. "'Yes, and it would be lovely to have Eleonora Douzet play the lead,' she said, and aside from the fact that it's evening in the first act, you're a great technician,' she said. I must say, I think she was pretty sarcastic. I've been reading up, and I know I could build a cyclorama. If she didn't want to run everything. Yes, and another thing, I think the entrance in the first act ought to be L U E, not L 3 E, from Juanita. And why does she just use plain white tormentors? What's a tormentor? blurted Rita Simons. The savant stared at her ignorance. 3. Carol did not resent their criticisms. She didn't very much resent their sudden knowledge, so long as they let her make pictures. It was at rehearsals that the quarrels broke. No one understood that rehearsals were as real engagements as bridge games or sociables at the Episcopal Church. They gaily came in half an hour late, or they vociferously came in ten minutes early, and they were so hurt that they whispered about resigning when Carol protested. They telephoned, I don't think I'd better come out afraid the dampness might start my toothache," or, "'Guess can't make it tonight. Dave wants me to sit in on a poker game.'" When after a month of labor as many as nine-elevenths of the cast were often present at a rehearsal, when most of them had learned their parts and some of them spoke like human beings, Carol had a new shock in the realization that Guy Pollock and herself were very bad actors, and that Ramy Weatherspoon was a surprisingly good one. For all her visions she could not control her voice, and she was bored by the fiftieth repetition of her few lines as maid. Guy pulled his soft mustache, looked self-conscious, and turned Mr. Grimm into a limp dummy. But Ramy, as the villain, had no repressions. The tilt of his head was full of character, his drawl was admirably vicious. There was an evening when Carol hoped she was going to make a play a rehearsal during which Guy stopped looking abashed. From that evening the play declined. They were weary. "'We know our parts well enough now. What's the use of getting sick of them?' they complained. They began to skylark, to play with the sacred lights, to giggle when Carol was trying to make the sentimental Myrtle Cass into a humorous office-boy, to act everything but the girl from Kankakee. After loafing through his proper part, Dr. Terry Gould had great applause for his burlesque of Hamlet. Even Ramey lost his simple faith, and tried to show that he could do a vaudeville shuffle. Carol turned on the company. "'See, here, I want this nonsense to stop. We've simply got to get down to work!' Juanita Haydock led the mutiny. "'Look here, Carol, don't be so bossy. After all, we're doing this play principally for the fun of it. And if we have fun out of a lot of monkey-shines, why then?" Yes, feebly. You said one time that folks in G.P. didn't get enough fun out of life, and now we're having a circus, you want us to stop?" Carol answered slowly. I wonder if I can explain what I mean. It's the difference between looking at the comic page and looking at Manet. I want fun out of this, of course. Only. I don't think it would be less fun, but more, to produce as perfect a play as we can." She was curiously exalted; Her voice was strained. She stared not at the company, but at the grotesques scrawled on the backs of wing-pieces by forgotten stage-hands. I wonder if you can understand the fun of making a beautiful thing, the pride and satisfaction of it, and the holiness. The company glanced doubtfully at one another. In Gopher Prairie it is not good form to be holy except at a church between ten-thirty and twelve on Sunday. But if we want to do it, we've got to work! We must have self-discipline!" They were at once amused and embarrassed. They did not want to affront this mad woman. They backed off and tried to rehearse. Carol did not hear Juanita in front, protesting to Maud Dyer. If she calls it fun and holiness to sweat over a darned old play, well, I don't. 4. Carol attended the only professional play which came to go for Prairie that spring. It was a tent show, presenting snappy new dramas under canvas. The hard-working actors doubled in brass and took tickets, and between acts sang about the moon in June. And sold Dr. Wintergreen surefire tonic for ills of the heart, lungs, kidneys, and bowels. They presented Sunbonnet Nell, a dramatic comedy of the Ozarks, with J. Witherby Boothby ringing the soul by his resonant, Ye ain't done right by my little gal, Mr. City Man, but you're a gonna find that back in these year hills. There's honest folks and good shots. The audience, on planks beneath the patched tent, admired Mr. Boothby's beard and long rifle stamped their feet in the dust at the spectacle of his heroism, shouted when the comedian aped the city lady's use of a lorgnon by looking through a doughnut stuck on a fork, wept visibly over Mr. Boothby's little gal Nell, who was also Mr. Boothby's legal wife Pearl, and when the curtain went down listened respectfully to Mr. Boothby's lecture on Dr. Winogreen's tonic as a cure for tapeworms, which he illustrated by horrible pallid objects curled in bottles of yellowing alcohol. Carol shook her head. Juanita is right, I'm a fool. Holiness of the drama, Bernard Shaw... The only trouble with the girl from Kankakee is that it's too subtle for gopher prairie. She sought faith in spacious banal phrases taken from books, the instinctive nobility of simple souls, need only the opportunity to appreciate fine things, and sturdy exponents of democracy but these optimisms did not sound so loud as the laughter of the audience at the funny man's line, "'Yes, by hecklem, I'm a smart fella. She wanted to give up the play, the dramatic association, the town. As she came out of the tent and walked with Kennicott down the dusty spring street, she peered at this straggling wooden village and felt that she could not possibly stay here through all of tomorrow. It was Miles Bjornstam who gave her strength he and the fact that every seat for the girl from Kankakee had been sold. Bjornstam was keeping company with B. Every night he was sitting on the back steps. Once, when Carol appeared, he grumbled, "'Hope you're going to give this berg one good show. If you don't reckon nobody ever will.' 5. It was the great night. It was the night of the play. The two dressing-rooms were swirling with actors, panting, twitchy-pale. Del Snaflin the barber, who was as much a professional as Ella, having once gone in on a mob scene at a stock company performance in Minneapolis, was making them up, and showing his scorn for amateurs with, "'Stand still! For the love of Mike, how do you expect me to get your eyelids dark if you keep a-wigglin?' And the actors were beseeching, "'Hey, Del, put some red in my nostrils. You put some in Rita's? Gee, you didn't hardly do anything to my face. They were enormously theatric. They examined Dell's make-up box, they sniffed the scent of grease paint. Every minute they ran out to peep through the hole in the curtain, they came back to inspect their wigs and costumes. They read on the whitewashed walls of the dressing-rooms the pencil inscriptions, the Flora Flanders Comedy Company, and this is a bum theatre! and felt that they were companions of these vanished troopers. Carol, smart in maid's uniform, coaxed the temporary stagehands to finish setting the first act, wailed at Kennicott the electrician. Now, for heaven's sake, remember the change in cue for the Ambers in Act Two, slipped out to ask Dave Dyer, the ticket-taker, if he could get some more chairs, warned the frightened Myrtle cast to be sure to upset the wastebasket when John Grimm called, "'Here you ready!' Del Snaflin's orchestra of piano, violin and cornet began to tune up, and everyone behind the magic line of the proscenic arch was frightened into paralysis. Carol wavered to the hole in the curtain. There were so many people out there, staring so hard. In the second row she saw Miles Bjornstam, not with B but alone. He really wanted to see the play. It was a good omen. Who could tell? Perhaps this evening would convert Gopher Prairie to conscious beauty. She darted into the women's dressing-room, roused Maud Dyer from her fainting panic, pushed her to the wings and ordered the curtain up. It rose doubtfully, it staggered and trembled, but it did get up, without catching, this time. Then she realized that Kennicott had forgotten to turn off the house lights. Someone out front was giggling. She galloped round to the left wing, herself pulled the switch, looked so ferociously at Kennicott that he quaked and fled back. Mrs. Dyer was creeping out on the half-darkened stage. The play was begun. And with that instant Carol realized that it was a bad play, abominably acted. Encouraging them with lying smiles, she watched her work go to pieces. The setting seemed flimsy, the lighting commonplace. She watched Guy Pollock stammer and twist his mustache when he should have been a bullying magnate. Vida Sherwin, as Grimm's timid wife, Chatter at the audience as though they were her class in high school English. Juanita, in the leading role, defy Mr. Grimm as though she were repeating a list of things she had to buy at the grocery this morning. Ella Stowbody remark, "I'd like a cup of tea," as though she were reciting, "Curfew shall not ring tonight." And Doctor Gould, making love to read assignments, squeak, "My, my, you are a wonderful." Girl, Myrtle Cass, as the office-boy, was so much pleased by the applause of her relatives, then so much agitated by the remarks of Cy Bogart in the back row, in reference to her wearing trousers, that she could hardly be got off the stage. Only Ramy was so unsociable as to devote himself entirely to acting. That she was right in her opinion of the play, Carol was certain when Miles Bjornstam went out after the first act and did not come back. 6. Between the second and third acts, she called the company together and supplicated, I want to know something before we have a chance to separate. Whether we're doing well or badly tonight, it is a beginning. But will we take it as merely a beginning? How many of you will pledge yourselves to start in with me right away to-morrow and plan for another play, to be given in September? They stared at her they nodded at Juanita's protest. I think one's enough for a while. It's going elegant tonight. But another play. Seems to me it'll be time enough to talk about that next fall. Carol, I hope you don't mean to hint and suggest we're not doing fine tonight. I'm sure the applause shows the audience think it's just dandy." Then Carol knew how completely she had failed. As the audience seeped out, She heard B. J. Gogerling, the banker, say to Howland the grocer, "'Well, I think the folks did splendid. Just as good as professionals. But I don't care much for these plays. What I like is a good movie, with auto accidents and hold-ups and some get-to-it, and not all this talky-talk.' Then Carol knew how certain she was to fail again. She wearily did not blame them, company nor audience. Herself, she blamed, for trying to carve intaglios in good wholesome jack-pine. It's the worst defeat of all. I'm beaten. By Main Street. I must go on. But I can't." She was not vastly encouraged by the gopher prairie dauntless. Would be impossible to distinguish among the actors when all gave such fine account of themselves in difficult roles of this well-known New York stage-play. Guy Pollock as the old millionaire could not have been bettered for his fine impersonation of the gruff old millionaire. Mrs. Harry Haydock as the young lady from the West, who so easily showed the New York four-flushers where they got off, was a vision of loveliness with fine stage presence. Miss Vida Sherwin, the ever-popular teacher in our high school, pleased as Mrs. Grimm. Dr. Gould was well-suited in the role of young lover. Girls, you better look out remember, the doc is a bachelor. The local four hundred also report that he is a great hand at shaking the light fantastic Tootsies in the Dance. As the stenographer, Rita Simons was pretty as a picture, and Miss Ella Stowbody's long and intensive study of the drama and kindred arts in Eastern schools was seen in the fine finish of her part. To no one is greater credit to be given than to Mrs. Will Kennicott, on whose capable shoulders fell the burden of directing. So kindly, Carol mused, so well-meant, so neighborly, and so confoundedly untrue! Is it really my failure, or theirs?" She sought to be sensible. She elaborately explained to herself that it was hysterical to condemn Gopher Prairie because it did not foam over the drama, its justification was in its service as a market town for farmers, how bravely and generously it did its work, forwarding the bread of the world feeding and healing the farmers. Then on the corner below her husband's office she heard a farmer holding forth, Sure, course I was beaten. The shipper and the grocers here wouldn't pay us a decent price for our potatoes, even though folks in the cities were howling for them. So we says, well, we'll get a truck and ship them right down to Minneapolis. But the commission merchants there were in cahoots with the local shipper here. They said they wouldn't pay us a cent more than he would not even if they was nearer to the market. Well, we found we could get higher prices in Chicago, but when we tried to get freight cars to ship there, the railroads wouldn't let us have them, even though they had cars standing empty right here in the yards. There you got it. Good market, and these towns keeping us from it. Gus, that's the way these towns work all the time. They pay what they want to for our wheat, but we pay what they want us to for their clothes. Stowbody and Dawson foreclose every mortgage they can and put in tenant farmers. The dauntless lies to us about the nonpartisan league. The lawyers sting us. The machine dealers hate to carry us over bad years, and then their daughters put on swell dresses and look at us as if we're a bunch of hoboes. Man, I'd like to burn this town. Kennicott observed there's that old crank West Brannigan shooting off his mouth again. Gosh, but he loves to hear himself talk they ought to run that fellow out of town." Seven. She felt old and detached through high school commencement week, which is the fete of youth in Gopher Prairie. Through baccalaureate sermon, senior parade, junior entertainment, commencement address by an Iowa clergyman who asserted that he believed in the virtue of virtuousness, and the procession of decoration day when the few Civil War veterans followed Champ Perry in his rusty forage cap along the spring-powdered road to the cemetery. She met Guy. She found that she had nothing to say to him. Her head ached in an aimless way. When Kennicott rejoiced, "'We'll have a great time this summer! Move down to the lake early and wear old clothes and act natural!' She smiled, but her smile creaked. In the prairie heat she trudged along unchanging ways. Talked about nothing to tepid people, and reflected that she might never escape from them. She was startled to find that she was using the word escape. Then, for three years, which passed like one curt paragraph, she ceased to find anything interesting save the Bjornstams and her baby. End of chapter 18. Chapter 19. Of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19. I. In three years of exile from herself, Carol had certain experiences chronicled as important by the dauntless or discussed by the jolly seventeen. But the event, unchronicled, undiscussed, and supremely controlling, was her slow admission of longing to find her own people. Two. B. and Miles Bjornstam were married in June, a month after the girl from Kankakee. Miles had turned respectable. He had renounced his criticisms of state and society. He had given up roving as horse-trader and wearing red mackinaws in lumber-camps. He had gone to work as engineer in Jack Elder's planing-mill. He was to be seen upon the streets endeavouring to be neighbourly with suspicious men whom he had taunted for years. Carol was the patroness and manager of the wedding. Juanita Haydock mocked, "'You're a chump to let a good hired girl like B go. Besides, how do you know it's a good thing, her marrying a sassy bum like this awful red Swede person? Get wise. Chase the man off with a mop and hold on to your Svenska while the holding's good. Huh? Me go to their Skandahoofian wedding? Not a chance. The other matrons echoed Juanita. Carol was dismayed by the casualness of their cruelty, but she persisted. Miles had exclaimed to her, Jack Elder says maybe he'll come to the wedding. Gee, it will be nice to have B meet the boss as a regular married lady. Some day I'll be so well off that B can play with Mrs. Elder, and you. Watch us! There was an uneasy knot of only nine guests at the service in the unpainted Lutheran church. Carol, Kennicott, Guy Pollock, and the Champ Perrys, all brought by Carol, B's frightened rustic parents, her cousin Tina, and Pete, Miles's ex-partner in horse-trading, a surly, hairy man who had bought a black suit and come twelve hundred miles from Spokane for the event. Miles continuously glanced back at the church door. Jackson Elder did not appear. The door did not once open after the awkward entrance of the first guests. Miles's hand closed on B's arm. He had, with Carol's help, made his shanty over into a cottage with white curtains and a canary and a chintz chair. Carol coaxed the powerful matrons to call on B. They half scoffed, half promised to go. B's successor was the oldish, broad, silent Oscarina, who was suspicious of her frivolous mistress for a month so that Juanita Haydock was able to crow, "'There, Smarty, I told you you'd run into the domestic problem!' But Oscarina adopted Carol as a daughter, and with her as faithful to the kitchen as Bee had been, there was nothing changed in Carol's life. 3. She was unexpectedly appointed to the town library board by Old Jensen, the new mayor. The other members were Dr. Westlake, Lyman Cass, Julius Flickerball the attorney, Guy Pollock and Martin Mahoney, former livery stable-keeper and now owner of a garage. She was delighted. She went to the first meeting rather condescendingly, regarding herself as the only one besides Guy who knew anything about books or library methods. She was planning to revolutionize the whole system. Her condescension was ruined and her humility wholesomely increased when she found the board, in the shabby room on the second floor of the house which had been converted into the library, not discussing the weather and longing to play checkers, but talking about books. She discovered that amiable old Dr. Westlake read everything in verse and light fiction, that Lyman Cass, the veal-faced, bristly-bearded owner of the mill, had tramped through Gibbon, Hume, Grote, Prescott, and the other thick historians, that he could repeat pages from them, and did when Dr. Westlake whispered to her, "'Yes, Lyme is a very well-informed man, but he's modest about it.' She felt uninformed and immodest, and scolded at herself that she had missed the human potentialities in this vast gopher prairie. When Dr. Westlake quoted the Paradiso, Don Quixote, Wilhelm Meister and the Koran, she reflected that no one she knew, not even her father, had read all four. She came definitely to the second meeting of the board. She did not plan to revolutionize anything. She hoped that the wise elders might be so tolerant as to listen to her suggestions about changing the shelving of the juveniles. Yet after four sessions of the library board she was where she had been before the first session. She had found that for all their pride in being reading men, Westlake and Cass and even Guy had no conception of making the library familiar to the whole town. They used it, they passed resolutions about it, and they left it as dead as Moses. Only the Henty books and the Elsie books and the latest optimisms by moral female novelists and virile clergymen were in general demand, and the board themselves were interested only in old, stilted volumes. They had no tenderness for the noisiness of youth discovering great literature. If she was egotistic about her tiny learning, they were at least as much so regarding theirs. And for all their talk of the need of additional library tax, none of them was willing to risk censure by battling for it, though they now had so small a fund, that after paying for rent, heat, light, and Miss Villitz's salary they had only a hundred dollars a year for the purchase of books. The incident of the seventeen cents killed her none too enduring interest. She had come to the board meeting singing with a plan. She had made a list of thirty European novels of the past ten years, with twenty important books on psychology, education and economics which the library lacked. She had made Kennicott promise to give fifteen dollars. If each of the board would contribute the same, they could have the books. Lime Cass looked alarmed, scratched himself and protested, I think it would be a bad precedent for the board members to contribute money, Ah, not that I mind, but it would be fair. Establish precedent. Gracious, they don't pay us a cent for our services. Certainly can't expect us to pay for the privilege of serving." Only Guy looked sympathetic and he stroked the pine table and said nothing. The rest of the meeting they gave to a bellicose investigation of the fact that there was seventeen cents less than there should be in the fund. Miss Villitz was summoned. She spent half an hour in explosively defending herself. The seventeen cents were gnawed over, penny by penny. And Carol, glancing at the carefully inscribed list which had been so lovely and exciting an hour before, was silent and sorry for Miss Villitz and sorrier for herself. She was reasonably regular in attendance till her two years were up, and Vida Sherwin was appointed to the board in her place, but she did not try to be revolutionary. In the plodding course of her life there was nothing changed and nothing new. 4. Kennicott made an excellent land deal, but as he told her none of the details she was not greatly exalted or agitated. What did agitate her was his announcement, half whispered and half blurted, half tender and half coldly medical, that they ought to have a baby, not that they could afford it. They had so long agreed that perhaps it would be just as well not to have any children for a while yet, that childlessness had come to be natural. Now she feared and longed and did not know. She hesitatingly assented and wished that she had not assented. As there appeared no change in their drowsy relations, she forgot all about it, and life was planless. V. Idling on the porch of their summer cottage at the lake, on afternoons when Kennicott was in town, when the water was glazed and the whole air languid, she pictured a hundred escapes. Fifth Avenue in a snowstorm, with limousines, golden shops, a cathedral spire. A reed hut on fantastic piles above the mud of a jungle river a suite in Paris, immense high grave rooms with labricans and a balcony, the Enchanted Mesa, an ancient stone mill in Maryland at the turn of the road between rocky brook and abrupt hills, an upland moor of sheep and flitting cool sunlight, a clanging dock where steel cranes unloaded steamers from Buenos Aires and Sing Tau, a Munich concert hall, and a famous cellist playing, playing to her. One scene had a persistent witchery. She stood on a terrace overlooking a boulevard by the warm sea. She was certain, though she had no reason for it, that the place was Mentone. Along the drive below her swept barouches, with a mechanical tlot-tlot, tlot-flot, tlot clot tlot, 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 and great cars with polished black hoods and engines quiet as the sigh of an old man. In them were women erect, slender, enameled, and expressionless as marionettes, their small hands upon parasols, their unchanging eyes always forward, ignoring the men beside them, tall men, with grey hair and distinguished faces. Beyond the drive were painted sea and painted sands, and blue and yellow pavilions. Nothing moved except the gliding carriages, and the people were small and wooden, spots in a picture drenched with gold and hard bright blues. There was no sound of sea or winds, no softness of whispers nor of falling petals, nothing but yellow and cobalt and staring light, and the never-changing tlot-slot-tlot-slot. She startled. She whimpered. It was the rapid ticking of the clock which had hypnotized her into hearing the steady hoofs. No aching color of the sea and pride of supercilious people, but the reality of a round-bellied nickel alarm clock on a shelf against a fuzzy unplaned pine wall, with a stiff gray wash-rag hanging above it and a kerosene stove standing below. A thousand dreams, governed by the fiction she had read, drawn from the pictures she had envied, absorbed her drowsy lake afternoons, but always in the midst of them Kennicott came out from town, drew on khaki trousers which were plastered with dry fish-scales and asked, enjoying yourself?" and did not listen to her answer. And nothing was changed and there was no reason to believe that there ever would be change. 6. Trains. At the lake cottage she missed the passage of the trains. She realized that, in town, she had depended upon them for assurance that there remained a world beyond. The railroad was more than a means of transportation to go for prairie. It was a new god, a monster of steel limbs, oak ribs, flesh of gravel, and a stupendous hunger for freight. A deity created by man that he might keep himself respectful to property, as elsewhere he had elevated and served as tribal gods the mines, cotton mills, motor factories, colleges, army. The East remembered generations when there had been no railroad, and had no awe of it, But here the railroads had been before time was. The towns had been staked out on barren prairie as convenient points for future train-halts, and back in 1860 and 1870 there had been much profit, much opportunity to found aristocratic families, in the possession of advanced knowledge as to where the towns would arise. If a town was in disfavor, the railroad could ignore it, cut it off from commerce, slay it, To go for Prairie, the tracks were eternal verities, and boards of railroad directors and omnipotence. The smallest boy, or the most secluded grandam, could tell you whether number thirty-two had a hot box last Tuesday, whether number seven was going to put on an extra day-coach, and the name of the president of the road was familiar to every breakfast table. Even in this new era of motors, the citizens went down to the station to see the trains go through. It was their romance, their only mystery besides mass at the Catholic Church, and from the trains came lords of the outer world, traveling salesmen with piping on their waistcoats, and visiting cousins from Milwaukee. Gopher Prairie had once been a division point. The roundhouse and repair shops were gone, but two conductors still retained residence, and they were persons of distinction, men who traveled and talked to strangers who wore uniforms with brass buttons, and knew all about these crooked games of conmen. They were a special cast, neither above nor below the Haydocks, but apart—artists and adventurers. The night telegraph operator at the railroad station was the most melodramatic figure in town. Awake at three in the morning, alone in a room hectic with clatter of the telegraph key. All night he talked to operators twenty, fifty a hundred miles away. It was always to be expected that he would be held up by robbers. He never was, but round him was the suggestion of masked faces at the window, revolvers, cords binding him to a chair, his struggle to crawl to the quay before he fainted. During blizzards everything about the railroad was melodramatic. There were days when the town was completely shut off, when they had no mail, no express, no fresh meat, no newspapers. At last the rotary snowplow came through, bucking the drifts, sending up a geyser, and the way to the outside was open again. The brakemen, in mufflers and fur caps, running along the tops of ice-coated freight cars, the engineers scratching frost from the cab windows and looking out, inscrutable, self-contained pilots of the prairie sea. They were heroism. They were to Carol the daring of the quest in a world of groceries and sermons. To the small boys the railroad was a familiar playground. They climbed the iron ladders on the sides of the boxcars, built fires behind piles of old ties, waved to favorite brakemen, but to Carol it was magic. She was motoring with Kennicott, the car lumping through darkness, the light showing mud puddles and ragged weeds by the road. A train coming. A rapid chuck a chuck, chuck a chuck, chuck a chuck. It was hurling past, the Pacific Flyer, an arrow of golden flame. Light from the firebox splashed the underside of the trailing smoke. Instantly the vision was gone. Carroll was back in the long darkness, and Kennicott was giving his version of that fire in wonder. Number nineteen. Must be about ten minutes late. In town, she listened from bed to the express whistling in the cut a mile north. Ooooo! Faint, nervous, distrait, horn of the free night riders journeying to the tall towns where laughter and banners and the sound of bells. Ooh, Ooh. The world going by. Ooooo! Fainter, more wistful, gone. Down here there were no trains. The stillness was very great. The prairie encircled the lake, lay round her, raw, dusty, thick. Only the train could cut it. Some day she would take a train, and that would be a great taking. Seven. She turned to the Chautauqua, as she had turned to the Dramatic Association, to the library board. Besides the permanent Mother Chautauqua in New York, there are, all over these states, commercial Chautauqua companies which send out to every smallest town troops of lecturers and entertainers to give a week of culture under canvas. Living in Minneapolis, Carol had never encountered the ambulant Chautauqua, and the announcement of its coming to Gopher Prairie gave her hope that others might be doing the vague things which she had attempted. She pictured a condensed university course brought to the people mornings when she came in from the lake with Kennicott, she saw placards in every shop-window, and strung on a cord across Main Street, a line of pennants alternately worded, "'The Bolin-Chautauqua coming!' and, "'A solid week of inspiration and enjoyment!' But she was disappointed when she saw the program. It did not seem to be a tabloid university, it did not seem to be any kind of a university it seemed to be a combination of vaudeville performance, Y.M.C.A. lecture, and the graduation exercises of an elocution class." She took her doubt to Kennicott. He insisted, "'Well, maybe it won't be so awful darn intellectual, the way you and I might like it, but it's a whole lot better than nothing.'" Vita Sherwin added, "'They have some splendid speakers. If the people don't carry off so much actual information, They do get a lot of new ideas, and that's what counts." During the Chautauqua, Carol attended three evening meetings, two afternoon meetings, and one in the morning. She was impressed by the audience. The sallow women in skirts and blouses, eager to be made to think, the men in vests and shirt-sleeves, eager to be allowed to laugh, and the wriggling children, eager to sneak away. She liked the plain benches the portable stage under its red marquee, the great tent over all, shadowy above strings of incandescent bulbs at night and by day casting an amber radiance on the patient crowd. The scent of dust and trampled grass and sun-baked wood gave her an illusion of Syrian caravans. She forgot the speakers while she listened to noises outside the tent. Two farmers talking hoarsely. A wagon creaking down Main Street the crow of a rooster. She was content. But it was the contentment of the lost hunter stopping to rest. For from the Chautauqua itself she got nothing but wind and chaff and heavy laughter, the laughter of yokels at old jokes, a mirthless and primitive sound, like the cries of beasts on a farm. These were the several instructors in the Condensed University seven-day course. Nine lecturers four of them ex-ministers, and one an ex-congressman, all of them delivering inspirational addresses. The only facts or opinions which Carroll derived from them were, Lincoln was a celebrated President of the United States, but in his youth extremely poor. James J. Hill was the best-known railroad man of the West, and in his youth extremely poor. Honesty and courtesy in business are preferable to boorishness and exposed trickery, but this is not to be taken personally, since all persons in Gopher Prairie are known to be honest and courteous. London is a large city. A distinguished statesman once taught Sunday school. Four entertainers who told Jewish stories, Irish stories, German stories, Chinese stories, and Tennessee mountaineer stories, most of which Carol had heard. A lady elocutionist who recited Kipling and imitated children a lecturer with motion pictures of an Andean exploration, excellent pictures and a halting narrative, three brass bands, a company of six opera singers, a Hawaiian sextet, and four youths who played saxophones and guitars disguised as washboards. The most applauded pieces were those, such as the Lucia inevitability, which the audience had heard most often. The local superintendent, who remained through the week while the other Enlighteners went to other Chautauquas for their daily performances. The superintendent was a bookish, underfed man, who worked hard at rousing artificial enthusiasm, at trying to make the audience cheer by dividing them into competitive squads and telling them that they were intelligent and made splendid communal noises. He gave most of the morning lectures, droning with equal unhappy facility about poetry, the Holy Land, and the injustice to employers in any system of profit-sharing. The final item was a man who neither lectured, inspired, nor entertained. A plain little man with hands in his pockets. All the other speakers had confessed, I cannot keep from telling the citizens of your beautiful city that none of the talent on this circuit have found a more charming spot, or more enterprising and hospitable people." But the little man suggested that the architecture of Gropher Prairie was haphazard, and that it was sottish to let the lakefront be monopolized by the cinder-heaped wall of the railroad embankment. Afterward the audience grumbled, "'Maybe that guy's got the right dope, but what's the use of looking on the dark side of things all the time? New ideas are first-rate, but not all this criticism.' enough trouble in life without looking for it." Thus the Chautauqua as Carol saw it. After it the town felt proud and educated. 8. Two weeks later the Great War smote Europe. For a month Gopher Prairie had the delight of shuddering, then, as the war settled down to a business of trench fighting, they forgot. When Carol talked about the Balkans and the possibility of a German Revolution, Kennicott yawned, Oh yes, it's a great old scrap, but it's none of our business. Folks out here are too busy growing corn to monkey with any fool war that those foreigners want to get themselves into. It was Miles Bjornstam who said, I can't figure it out. I'm opposed to wars, but still, seems like Germany has got to get licked because them junkers stands in the way of progress she was calling on Miles and Bee early in autumn. They had received her with cries, with a dusting of chairs and a running to fetch water for coffee. Miles stood and beamed at her. He fell often and joyously into his old irreverence about the Lords of Gopher Prairie, but always, with a certain difficulty, he added something decorous and appreciative. "'Lots of people have come to see you, haven't they?' Carol hinted. "'Why, Bee's cousin Tina comes in right along. In the foreman at the mill and—oh, we have good times! Say, take a look at that bee! Wouldn't you think she was a canary-bird, to listen to her and to see that hoofy and head of hers? But say, know what she is? She's a mother hen! Way she fusses over me, way she makes old Miles wear a necktie! Hate to spoil her by letting her hear it, but she's one pretty darn nice—nice—hell! what do we care if none of the dirty snobs come and call? We've got each other!" Carol worried about their struggle, but she forgot it in the stress of sickness and fear. For that autumn she knew that a baby was coming, that at last life promised to be interesting in the peril of the great change. End of chapter 19 CHAPTER 20. Of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20. One. The baby was coming. Each morning she was nauseated, chilly, bedraggled, and certain that she would never again be attractive. Each twilight she was afraid. She did not feel exalted, but unkempt and furious. The period of daily sickness crawled into an endless time of boredom. It became difficult for her to move about, and she raged that she, who had been slim and light-footed, should have to lean on a stick, and be heartily commented upon by street gossips. She was encircled by greasy eyes. Every matron hinted, "'Now that you're going to be a mother, dearie, you'll get over all these ideas of yours and settle down.' She felt that willy-nilly she was being initiated into the assembly of housekeepers. With the baby for hostage, she would never escape. Presently, she would be drinking coffee and rocking and talking about diapers. I could stand fighting them, I'm used to that, but this being taken in, being taken as a matter of course, I can't stand it. And I must stand it she alternately detested herself for not appreciating the kindly women, and detested them for their advice. Lugubrious hints as to how much she would suffer in labor, details of baby hygiene based on long experience and total misunderstanding, superstitious cautions about the things she must eat and read and look at in prenatal care for the baby's soul, and always a pest of simpering baby talk. Mrs. Champ Perry bustled in to lend ben her as a preventive of future infant immorality. The widow Bogart appeared trailing pinkish exclamations. "'And how is our lovely Ito Muzzy to-day? My, ain't it just like they always say? Being in a family way does make the girlie so lovely, just like a Madonna!' "'Tell me,' her whisper was tinged with salaciousness, Does who feel the dear itsy one stirring, the Pledge of Love?" I remember with sigh, of course, he was so big. "'I do not look lovely, Mrs. Bogart. My complexion is rotten and my hair is coming out, and I look like a potato-bag, and I think my arches are falling, and he isn't a Pledge of Love, and I'm afraid he will look like us, and I don't believe in mother devotion and the whole business is a confounded nuisance of a biological process,' remarked Carol. Then the baby was born, without unusual difficulty—a boy with straight back and strong legs. The first day she hated him for the tides of pain and hopeless fear he had caused. She resented his raw ugliness. After that she loved him with all the devotion and instinct at which she had scoffed. She marvelled at the perfection of the miniature hands as noisily as did Kennicott. She was overwhelmed by the trust with which the baby turned to her passion for him grew with each unpoetic irritating thing she had to do for him. He was named Hugh for her father. Hugh developed into a thin, healthy child with a large head and straight delicate hair of a faint brown. He was thoughtful and casual, a Kennicott. For two years nothing else existed. She did not, as the cynical matrons had prophesied, give up worrying about the world and other folks' babies as soon as she got one of her own to fight for." The barbarity of that willingness to sacrifice other children so that one child might have too much was impossible to her. But she would sacrifice herself. She understood consecration, she who answered Kennicott's hints about having Hugh christened, "'I refused to insult my baby and myself by asking an ignorant young man in a frock-coat to sanction him to permit me to have him. I refuse to subject him to any devil-chasing rites. If I didn't give my baby, my baby, enough sanctification in those nine hours of hell, then he can't get any more out of the Reverend Mr. Zitterell! Well, Baptists hardly ever christened kids. I was kind of thinking more about Reverend Warren," said Kennicott. Hugh was her reason for living promise of accomplishment in the future, shrine of adoration, and a diverting toy. "'I thought I'd be a dilettante mother, but I'm as dismayingly natural as Mrs. Bogart,' she boasted. For two years Carol was a part of the town, as much one of our young mothers as Mrs. McGannum. Her opinionation seemed dead, she had no apparent desire for escape. Her brooding centered on Hugh. While she wondered at the pearl texture of his ear, she exulted, "'I feel like an old woman with a skin like sandpaper beside him. And I'm glad of it. He is perfect. He shall have everything. He shan't always stay here and go for prairie. I wonder which is really the best, Harvard or Yale or Oxford?' Two. The people who hemmed her in had been brilliantly reinforced by Mr. and Mrs. Whittier N. Smale, Kennicott's Uncle Whittier and Aunt Bessie. The true Main Streetite defines a relative as a person to whose house you go uninvited, to stay as long as you like. If you hear that Lime Cass on his journey east has spent all his time visiting in Oyster Centre, it does not mean that he prefers that village to the rest of New England, but that he has relatives there. It does not mean that he has written to the relatives these many years, nor that they have ever given signs of a desire to look upon him. But you wouldn't expect a man to go and spend good money at a hotel in Boston when his own third cousins live right in the same state, would you?" When the Smales sold their creamery in North Dakota they visited Mr. Smales' sister, Kennicott's mother, at Lacquemure, then plotted on to go for Prairie to stay with their nephew. They appeared unannounced, before the baby was born, took their welcome for granted, and immediately began to complain of the fact that their room faced north. Uncle Whittier and Aunt Bessie assumed that it was their privilege as relatives to laugh at Carol, and their duty as Christians to let her know how absurd her notions were. They objected to the food, to Oscarina's lack of friendliness, to the wind, the rain, and the immodesty of Carol's maternity gowns. They were strong and enduring. For an hour at a time they could go on heaving questions about her father's income, about her theology, and about the reason why she had not put on her rubbers when she had gone across the street. For fussy discussion they had a rich full genius, and their example developed in Kennicott a tendency to the same form of affectionate flaying. If Cara was so indiscreet as to murmur that she had a small headache, Instantly, the two Smales and Kennicott were at it. Every five minutes, every time she sat down or rose or spoke to Oskarina, they twanged, Is your head better now? Where does it hurt? Don't you keep hartshorn in the house? Didn't you walk too far today? Have you tried hartshorn? Don't you keep some in the house so it will be handy? Does it feel better now? How does it feel? Do your eyes hurt too? What time do you usually get to bed? As late as that, well, how does it feel now?" In her presence, Uncle Whittier snorted at Kennicott, "'Carol get these headaches often, huh? Be better for her if she didn't go gadding around to all these bridge-whist parties and took some care of herself once in a while.' They kept it up, commenting, questioning, commenting, questioning, till her determination broke and she bleated, "'For Heaven's sake, don't discuss it!' My head's all right!" She listened to the Smales and Kennicott, trying to determine by dialectics whether the copy of The Dauntless, which Aunt Bessie wanted to send to her sister in Alberta, ought to have two or four cents postage on it. Carol would have taken it to the drug store and weighed it, but then she was a dreamer, while they were practical people, as they frequently admitted. So they sought to evolve the postal rate from their inner consciousness which, combined with entire frankness in thinking aloud, was their method of settling all problems. The Smales did not believe in all this nonsense about privacy and reticence. When Carol left a letter from her sister on the table, she was astounded to hear from Uncle Whittier, "'I see your sister says her husband is doing fine. You ought to go see her oftener. I asked Will and he says you don't go see her very often. My, you ought to go see her oftener.' If Carol was writing a letter to a classmate, or planning the week's menus, she could be certain that Aunt Bessie would pop in and titter. Now, don't let me disturb you, I just wanted to see where you were. Don't stop! I'm not going to stay only a second. I just wondered if you could possibly have thought that I didn't eat the onions this noon because I didn't think they were properly cooked, but that wasn't the reason at all, it wasn't because I didn't think they were well cooked. I'm sure that everything in your house is always very dainty and nice, though I do think that Oscarina is careless about some things. She doesn't appreciate the big wages you pay her, and she is so cranky. All these Swedes are so cranky. I don't really see why you have a Swede. But... But that wasn't it. I didn't eat them, not because I didn't think they weren't cooked proper. It was just... I find that onions don't agree with me. It's very strange. Ever since I had an attack of biliousness one time, I have found that onions, either fried onions or raw ones, and Whittier does love raw onions with vinegar and sugar on them. It was pure affection." Carol was discovering that the one thing that can be more disconcerting than intelligent hatred is demanding love. She supposed that she was being gracefully dull and standardized in the Smale's presence, but they scented the heretic and with forward-stooping delight they sat and tried to drag out her ludicrous concepts for their amusement. They were like the Sunday afternoon mob starting at monkeys in the zoo, poking fingers and making faces and giggling at the resentment of the more dignified race. With a loose-lipped, superior, village smile, Uncle Whittier hinted, "'What's this I hear about your thinking Gopher Prairie ought to be all torn down and rebuilt, Carrie? I don't know where folks get these new-fangled ideas. Lots of farmers in Dakota gettin' em these days. About cooperation. Think they can run stores better'n storekeepers. Huh!" Whit and I didn't need no cooperation as long as we was farming, triumphed Aunt Bessie. Carrie, tell your old auntie now, don't you ever go to church on Sunday? You do go sometimes, but you ought to go every Sunday. When you're as old as I am you'll learn that no matter how smart folks think they are, God knows a whole lot more than they do, and then you'll realize and be glad to go and listen to your pastor." In the manner of one who has just beheld a two-headed calf, they repeated that they had never heard such funny ideas. They were staggered to learn that a real tangible person, living in Minnesota and married to their own flesh-and-blood relation, Could apparently believe that divorce may not always be immoral, that illegitimate children do not bear any special and guaranteed form of curse, that there are ethical authorities outside of the Hebrew Bible, that men have drunk wine yet not died in the gutter, that the capitalistic system of distribution and the Baptist wedding ceremony were not known in the Garden of Eden, that mushrooms are as edible as corned beef hash, that the word dude is no longer frequently used that there are ministers of the gospel who accept evolution, that some persons of apparent intelligence and business ability do not always vote the republican ticket straight, that it is not a universal custom to wear scratchy flannels next the skin in winter, that a violin is not inherently more immoral than a chapel organ, that some poets do not have long hair, and that Jews are not always peddlers or pants-makers where does she get all them theories?" marveled Uncle Whittier Smale, while Aunt Bessie inquired, "'Do you suppose there's many folks got notions like hers? My, if there are,' and her tone settled the fact that there were not, "'I just don't know what the world's coming to.'" Patiently, more or less, Carol awaited the exquisite day when they would announce departure. After three weeks Uncle Whittier remarked, "'We kind of like Gopher Prairie.'" guess maybe we'll stay here. We've been wondering what we'd do, now we've sold the creamery in my farms, so I had a talk with old Jensen about his grocery, and I guess I'll buy him out and store-keep for a while." He did. Carol rebelled. Kennicott soothed her. Oh, we won't see much of them. They'll have their own house. She resolved to be so chilly that they would stay away, but she had no talent for conscious insolence. They found a house, but Carol was never safe from their appearance with a hearty, "'Thought we'd drop in this evening and keep you from being lonely. Why, you ain't had them curtains washed yet!' Invariably, whenever she was touched by the realization that it was they who were lonely, they wrecked her pitying affection by comments, questions, comments, advice. They immediately became friendly with all of their own race, with the Luke Dawsons, the Deacon Pearsons, and Mrs. Bogart and brought them along in the evening. Aunt Bessie was a bridge over which the older women, bearing gifts of counsel and the ignorance of experience, poured into Carol's Island of Reserve. Aunt Bessie urged the good widow Bogart, "'Drop in and see Carrie real often. Young folks to-day don't understand housekeeping like we do.' Mrs. Bogart showed herself perfectly willing to be an associate relative. Carol was thinking of protective insults when Kennicott's mother came down to stay with Brother Whittier for two months. Carol was fond of Mrs. Kennicott. She could not carry out her insults. She felt trapped. She had been kidnapped by the town. She was Aunt Bessie's niece, and she was to be a mother. She was expected, she almost expected herself, to sit forever talking of babies, cooks, embroidery-stitches, the price of potatoes and the tastes of husbands in the matter of spinach. She found a refuge in the Jolly Seventeen. She suddenly understood that they could be depended upon to laugh with her at Mrs. Bogart, and she now saw Juanita Haydock's gossip, not as vulgarity but as gaiety and remarkable analysis. Her life had changed, even before Hugh appeared. She looked forward to the next bridge of the Jolly Seventeen and the security of whispering with her dear friends Maud Dyer and Juanita and Mrs. McGannum. She was part of the town. Its philosophy and its feuds dominated her. Three. She was no longer irritated by the cooing of the matrons, nor by their opinion that diet didn't matter so long as the little ones had plenty of lace and moist kisses, but she concluded that in the care of babies, as in politics, intelligence was superior to quotations about pansies. She liked best to talk about Hugh to Kennicott, Vida and the Bjornstoms. She was happily domestic when Kennicott sat by her on the floor to watch Baby make faces. She was delighted when Miles, speaking as one man to another, admonished Hugh, "'I wouldn't stand them skirts if I was you. Come on! Join the Union and strike! Make em give you pants!' As a parent, Kennicott was moved to establish the first Child Welfare Week held in Gopher Prairie. Carol helped him weigh babies and examine their throats, and she wrote out the diets for mute German and Scandinavian mothers. The aristocracy of Gopher Prairie, even the wives of the rival doctors, took part, and for several days there was community spirit and much uplift. But this reign of love was overthrown when the prize for best baby was awarded not to decent parents, but to be in Miles Bjornstam." The good matrons glared at Olaf Bjornstam, with his blue eyes, his honey-colored hair, and magnificent back, and they remarked, "'Well, Mrs. Kennicott, maybe that swede-brat is as healthy as your husband says he is, but let me tell you I hate to think of the future that awaits any boy with a hired girl for a mother and an awful irreligious socialist for a paw.'" She raged. But so violent was the current of their respectability, so persistent was Aunt Bessie in running to her with their blabber, that she was embarrassed when she took Hugh to play with Olaf. She hated herself for it, but she hoped that no one saw her go into the Bjornstum shanty. She hated herself and the town's indifferent cruelty when she saw B's radiant devotion to both babies alike, when she saw Miles staring at them wistfully. He had saved money, had quit Elder's Pliny Mill and started a dairy on a vacant lot near his shack. He was proud of his three cows and sixty chickens, and got up nights to nurse them. I'll be a big farmer before you can bat an eye! I tell you, that young fellow Olaf is going to go east to college along with the Haydock kids. Uh, lots of folks dropping in to chin with B and me now. Say, Ma Bogart came in one day. She was... I'd like the old lady fine. And the mill foreman comes in right along. Oh, we got lots of friends. You bet four. Though the town seemed to Carol to change no more than the surrounding fields, there was a constant shifting these three years. The citizen of the prairie drifts always westward. It may be because he is the heir of ancient migrations and it may be because he finds within his own spirit so little adventure that he is driven to seek it by changing his horizon. The towns remain unvaried, yet the individual faces alter like classes in college. The Gopher Prairie jeweller sells out, for no discernible reason, and moves on to Alberta or the State of Washington, to open a shop precisely like his former one, in a town precisely like the one he has left there is, except among professional men and the wealthy, small permanence either of residence or occupation. A man becomes farmer, grocer, town policeman, garageman, restaurant owner, postmaster, insurance agent, and farmer all over again, and the community more or less patiently suffers from his lack of knowledge in each of his experiments. Old Jensen the grocer and Doll, the butcher moved on to South Dakota and Idaho. Luke and Mrs. Dawson picked up ten thousand acres of prairie soil, in the magic portable form of a small check-book, and went to Pasadena, to a bungalow and sunshine and cafeterias. Chet Dashaway sold his furniture and undertaking business and wandered to Los Angeles, where, the dauntless reported, "'Our good friend Chester has accepted a fine position with a real-estate firm, and his wife has in the charming social circles of the Queen City of the Southwestland." that same popularity which she enjoyed in our own society sets. Rita Simons was married to Terry Gould, and rivalled Juanita Haydock as the gayest of the young married set. But Juanita also acquired merit. Harry's father died, Harry became senior partner in the bonton store, and Juanita was more assiduous and shrewd and cackling than ever. She bought an evening frock and exposed her collarbone to the wonder of the jolly seventeen, and talked of moving to Minneapolis. To defend her position against the new Mrs. Terry Gould, she sought to attach Carol to her faction by giggling that, "'Some folks might call Rita innocent, but I've got a hunch that she isn't half as ignorant of things as brides are supposed to be. And, of course, Terry isn't one-two-three as a doctor alongside of your husband.' Carol herself would gladly have followed Mr. Old Jensen, and migrated even to another Main Street. Flight from familiar tedium to new tedium would have for a time the outer look and promise of adventure. She hinted to Kennicott of the probable medical advantages of Montana and Oregon. She knew that he was satisfied with Gopher Prairie, but it gave her vicarious hope to think of going, to ask for railroad folders at the station, to trace the maps with a restless forefinger. Yet, to the casual eye, she was not discontented; she was not an abnormal and distressing traitor to the faith of Main Street. The settled citizen believed that the rebel is constantly in a stew of complaining, and hearing of a Carol Kennicott, he gasps, "What an awful person she must be a holy terror to live with. Glad my folks are satisfied with things the way they are actually." It was not so much as five minutes a day that Carol devoted to lonely desires. It is probable that the agitated citizen has within his circle at least one inarticulate rebel with aspirations as wayward as Carol's. The presence of the baby had made her take Gopher Prairie and the Brown House seriously, as natural places of residence. She pleased Kennicott by being friendly with the complacent maturity of Mrs. Clark and Mrs. Elder and when she had often enough been in conference upon the elder's new Cadillac car, or the job which the oldest Clark boy had taken in the office of the flour mill, these topics became important, things to follow up day by day. With nine-tenths of her emotion concentrated upon Hugh, she did not criticize shops, streets, acquaintances, this year or two. She hurried to Uncle Whittier's store for a package of cornflakes. She abstractedly listened to Uncle Whittier's denunciation of Martin Mahoney for asserting that the wind last Tuesday had been south and not southwest. She came back along streets that held no surprises nor the startling faces of strangers. Thinking of Hugh's teething all the way, she did not reflect that this store, these drab blocks, made up all her background. She did her work, she triumphed over winning from the clerks at 500. The most considerable event of the two years after the birth of Hugh occurred when Vida Sherwin resigned from the high school and was married. Carol was her attendant, and as the wedding was at the Episcopal Church all the women wore new kid slippers and long white kid gloves and looked refined. For years Carol had been little sister to Vida. And had never in the least known to what degree Vida loved her and hated her, and in curious, strained ways was bound to her. End of chapter 20. Chapter 21 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21 1 gray steel that seems unmoving because it spins so fast in the balanced flywheel, gray snow in an avenue of elms, gray dawn with the sun behind it. This was the gray of Vida Sherwin's life at thirty-six. She was small and active and sallow. Her yellow hair was faded and looked dry. Her blue silk blouses and modest lace collars and high black shoes and sailor hats were as literal and uncharming as a schoolroom desk. But her eyes determined her appearance, revealed her as a personage and a force, indicated her faith in the goodness and purpose of everything. They were blue and they were never still. They expressed amusement, pity, enthusiasm. If she had been seen in sleep, with the wrinkles beside her eyes stilled and the creased lids hiding the radiant irises, she would have lost her potency. She was born in a hill-smothered Wisconsin village, where her father was a prosy minister. She labored through a sanctimonious college. She taught for two years in an iron-range town of blurry-faced Tatars and Montenegrins and wastes of ore, and when she came to gopher prairie, its trees and the shining spaciousness of the wheat prairie made her certain that she was in paradise. She admitted to her fellow-teachers that the school-building was slightly damp but she insisted that the rooms were arranged so conveniently, and that the bust of President McKinley at the head of the stairs, it's a lovely artwork, and isn't it an inspiration to have the brave, honest, martyr-president to think about?" She taught French, English and History, and the sophomore Latin class, which dealt in matters of metaphysical nature called Indirect Discourse and the Ablative Absolute. Each year she was reconvinced that the pupils were beginning to learn more quickly. She spent four winters in building up the debating society, and when the debate really was lively one Friday afternoon and the speakers of pieces did not forget their lines, she felt rewarded. She lived an engrossed, useful life, and seemed as cool and simple as an apple. But secretly she was creeping among fears, longing and guilt. She knew what it was, but she dared not name it. She hated even the sound of the word sex. When she dreamed of being a woman of the harem, with great wide, warm limbs, she awoke to shudder, defenceless in the dusk of her room. She prayed to Jesus, always to the Son of God, offering Him the terrible power of her adoration, addressing Him as the eternal lover, growing passionate, exalted, large, as she contemplated His splendour. Thus she mounted to endurance and surcease. By day, rattling about in many activities, she was able to ridicule her blazing nights of darkness. With spurious cheerfulness she announced everywhere, "'I guess I'm a born spinster,' and "'No one will ever marry a plain schoolma'am like me,' and "'You men, great big noisy bothersome creatures, we women wouldn't have you round the place, dirting up nice clean rooms, if it wasn't that you have to be petted and guided, we just ought to say scat to all of you.' But when a man held her close at a dance, even when Professor George Edwin Mott patted her hand paternally as they consider the naughtiness of Cy Bogart, she quivered and reflected how superior she was to have kept her virginity. In the autumn of 1911, a year before Dr. Will Kennicott was married, Vida was his partner at a five hundred tournament. She was thirty-four then, Kennicott about thirty-six. To her he was a superb, boyish, diverting creature, all the heroic qualities in a manly magnificent body. They had been helping the hostess to serve the Waldorf salad and coffee and gingerbread. They were in the kitchen, side by side on a bench, while the others ponderously supped in the room beyond. Kennicott was masculine and experimental. He stroked Vida's hand. He put his arm carelessly about her shoulder. Don't! she said sharply. You're a cunning thing," he offered, patting the back of her shoulder in an exploratory manner. While she strained away, she longed to move nearer to him. He bent over, looked at her knowingly. She glanced down at his left hand as it touched her knee. She sprang up, started noisily and needlessly to wash the dishes. He helped her. He was too lazy to adventure further, and too used to women in his profession. She was grateful for the impersonality of his talk. It enabled her to gain control. She knew that she had skirted wild thoughts. A month after, on a sleighing party, under the buffalo robes and the bobsled, he whispered, You pretend to be a grown up schoolteacher, but you're nothing but a kitty. His arm was about her. She resisted. Don't you like a poor, lonely bachelor? he yammered in a fatuous way. No, I don't you don't care for me in the least. You're just practising on me. You're so mean. I'm terribly fond of you." I'm not of you. And I'm not going to let myself be fond of you either." He persistently drew her toward him. She clutched his arm. Then she threw off the robe, climbed out of the shed, raced after it with Harry Haydock. At the dance which followed the sleigh-ride, Kennicott was devoted to the watery prettiness of Maud Dyer. And Vida was noisily interested in getting up a Virginia reel. Without seeming to watch Kennicott, she knew that he did not once look at her. That was all of her first love affair. He gave no sign of remembering that he was terribly fond. She waited for him. She reveled in longing and in a sense of guilt because she longed. She told herself that she did not want part of him. Unless he gave her all his devotion she would never let him touch her and when she found that she was probably lying, she burned with scorn. She fought it out in prayer. She knelt in a pink flannel nightgown, her thin hair down her back, her forehead as full of horror as a mask of tragedy, while she identified her love for the Son of God with her love for a mortal, and wondered if any other woman had ever been so sacrilegious. She wanted to be a nun and observe perpetual adoration. She bought a rosary, but she had been so bitterly reared as a Protestant that she could not bring herself to use it. Yet none of her intimates in the school and in the boarding-house knew of her abyss of passion. They said she was so optimistic. When she heard that Kennicott was to marry a girl, pretty, young and imposingly from the cities, Vida despaired. She congratulated Kennicott, carelessly ascertained from him the hour of the marriage. At that hour, sitting in her room, Vida pictured the wedding in St. Paul. Full of an ecstasy which horrified her, she followed Kennicott and the girl who had stolen her place, followed them to the train through the evening, the night. She was relieved when she had worked out a belief that she wasn't really shameful, that there was a mystical relation between herself and Carol, so that she was vicariously, yet veritably, with Kennicott, and had the right to be she saw Carol during the first five minutes in Gopher Prairie. She stared at the passing motor, at Kennicott and the girl beside him. In that fog world of transference of emotion, Vida had no normal jealousy, but a conviction that, since through Carol she had received Kennicott's love, then Carol was a part of her, an astral self, a heightened and more beloved self. She was glad of the girl's charm, of the smooth black hair, the airy head and young shoulders. But she was suddenly angry. Carol glanced at her for a quarter second, but looked past her, at an old roadside barn. If she had made the great sacrifice, at least she expected gratitude and recognition, Vita raged, while her conscious schoolroom mind fussily begged her to control this insanity. During her first call, half of her wanted to welcome a fellow reader of books. The other half itched to find out whether Carol knew anything about Kennicott's former interest in herself. She discovered that Carol was not aware that he had ever touched another woman's hand. Carol was an amusing, naive, curiously learned child. While Vida was most actively describing the glories of the Thanatopsis, and complimenting this librarian on her training as a worker, she was fancying that this girl was the child born of herself and Kennicott and out of that symbolizing she had a comfort she had not known for months. When she came home, after supper with the Kennicots and Guy Pollock, she had a sudden and rather pleasant backsliding from devotion. She bustled into her room, she slammed her hat on the bed and chattered, "I do don't care, I'm a lot like her, except a few years older, I'm light and quick too, and I can talk just as well as she can, and I'm sure." Men are such fools! I'd be ten times as sweet to make love to as that dreamy baby! And I am as good-looking!" But as she sat on the bed and stared at her thin thighs, defiance oozed away. She mourned. No, I'm not! Dear God, how we fool ourselves! I pretend I'm spiritual! I pretend my legs are graceful! They aren't! They're skinny! Old maidish! I hate it! I hate that impertinent young woman, a selfish cat, taking his love for granted. No, she's adorable. I don't think she ought to be so friendly with Guy Pollock." For a year Vida loved Carol, longed to and did not pry into the details of her relations with Kennicott, enjoyed her spirit of play as expressed in childish tea-parties, and, with the mystic bond between them forgotten, was healthily vexed by Carol's assumption that she was a sociological messiah come to save Gopher Prairie. This last facet of Vita's thought was the one which, after a year, was most often turned to the light. In a testy way, she brooded. These people that want to change everything all of a sudden, without doing any work, make me tired. Here I have to go and work for four years. Picking out the peoples for debates, and drilling them, nagging at them to get them to look up references, and begging them to choose their own subjects. Four years to get up a couple of good debates! And she comes rushing in and expects in one year to change the whole town into a lollipop paradise with everybody stopping everything else to grow tulips and drink tea. And it's a comfy homey old town, too!" She had such an outburst after each of Carol's campaigns for better thanatopsis programs, for Shavian plays, for more human schools, but she never betrayed herself and always she was penitent. Vita was, and always would be, a reformer, a liberal. She believed that details could excitingly be altered, but that things in general were comely and kind and immutable. Carol was, without understanding or accepting it, a revolutionist, a radical and therefore possessed of constructive ideas, which only the destroyer can have, since the reformer believes that all the essential constructing has already been done. After years of intimacy it was this unexpressed opposition more than the fancied loss of Kennicott's love which held Vida irritably fascinated. But the birth of Hugh revived the transcendental emotion she was indignant that Carol should not be utterly fulfilled in having borne Kennicott's child. She admitted that Carol seemed to have affection and immaculate care for the baby, but she began to identify herself now with Kennicott, and in this phase to feel that she had endured quite too much from Carol's instability. She recalled certain other women who had come from the outside and had not appreciated Gopher Prairie. She remembered the rector's wife, who had been chilly to callers and who was rumoured throughout the town to have said, really, I can't endure this bucolic heartiness in the responses. The woman was positively known to have worn handkerchiefs in her bodice as padding. Oh, the town had simply roared at her. Of course the rector and she were got rid of in a few months. Then there was the mysterious woman with the dyed hair and penciled eyebrows, who wore tight English dresses, like Basques who smelled of stale musk, who flirted with the men and got them to advance money for her expenses in a lawsuit, who laughed at Vida's reading at a school entertainment, and went off owing a hotel bill and the three hundred dollars she had borrowed. Vida insisted that she loved Carol, but with some satisfaction she compared her to these traducers of the town. Vida had enjoyed Remy Weatherspoon's singing in the Episcopal choir. She had thoroughly reviewed the weather with him at Methodist Sociables and in the Bon Ton. But she did not really know him till she moved to Mrs. Gurry's boarding-house. It was five years after her affair with Kennicott. She was thirty-nine, Remy perhaps a year younger. She said to him, and nicely, My, you can do anything, with your brains intact and that heavenly voice, You were so good in the girl from Kankakee. You made me feel terribly stupid. If you'd gone on the stage, I believe you'd be just as good as anybody in Minneapolis. But still, I'm not sorry you stuck to business. It's such a constructive career." Do you really think so? yearned Ramy, across the applesauce. It was the first time that either of them had found a dependable intellectual companionship. They looked down on Willis Woodford, the bank clerk, and his anxious, baby-centric wife, the silent Lyman Casses, the slangy traveling man and the rest of Mrs. Gurry's unenlightened guests. They sat opposite and they sat late. They were exhilarated to find that they agreed in confession of faith. People like Sam Clark and Harry Haydock aren't earnest about music and pictures and eloquent sermons and really refined movies, but then, on the other hand, People like Carol Kennicott put too much stress on all this art. Folks ought to appreciate lovely things, but just the same, they got to be practical, and they got to look at things in a practical way." Smiling, passing each other the pressed glass pickle dish, seeing Mrs. Gurry's linty supper-cloth irradiated by the light of intimacy, Vida and Ramy talked about Carol's rose-colored turban. Carol's sweetness. Carol's new low shoes. Carol's erroneous theory that there was no need of strict discipline in school. Carol's amiability in the bon ton. Carol's flow of wild ideas, which, honestly, just simply made you nervous trying to keep track of them. About the lovely display of gent's shirts in the bonton window as dressed by Remy. About Remy's offertory last Sunday. The fact that there weren't any of these new solos as nice as Jerusalem the Golden and the way Ramy stood up to Juanita Haydock when she came into the store and tried to run things, and he as much as told her that she was so anxious to have folks think she was smart and bright that she said things she didn't mean, and anyway, Ramy was running the shoe department, and if Juanita, or Harry either, didn't like the way he ran things, they could go get another man. About Vita's new jabot, which made her look thirty-two, Vita's estimate, or twenty-two, Ramy's estimate. Vitus planned to have the High School Debating Society give a playlet, and the difficulty of keeping the younger boys well-behaved on the playground when a big lubber like Cy Bogart acted up so. About the picture-postcard which Mrs. Dawson had sent to Mrs. Cass from Pasadena, showing roses growing right outdoors in February. The change in time on No. 4, the reckless way Dr. Gould always drove his auto, the reckless way almost all these people drove their autos the fallacy of supposing that these socialists could carry on a government for as much as six months if they ever did have a chance to try out their theories, and the crazy way in which Carol jumped from subject to subject. Vida had once beheld Ramy as a thin man with spectacles, mournful drawn-out face and colorless, stiff hair. Now she noted that his jaw was square, that his long hands moved quickly and were bleached in a refined manner, and that his trusting eyes indicated that he had led a clean life. She began to call him Ray, and to bounce in defence of his unselfishness and thoughtfulness every time Juanita Haydock or Rita Gold giggled about him at the jolly Seventeen. On a Sunday afternoon of late autumn they walked down to Lake Minimashi. Ray said that he would like to see the ocean. It must be a grand sight. It must be much grander than a lake, even a great big lake. Vida had seen it she stated modestly. She had seen it on a summer trip to Cape Cod. Have you been clear to Cape Cod? Massachusetts? I knew you traveled, but I never realized you'd been that far. Made taller and younger by his interest, she poured out, Oh, my, yes, it was a wonderful trip! So many points of interest through Massachusetts, historical. There's Lexington, where we turned back the redcoats, and Longfellow's home at Cambridge and Cape Cod. Just everything. Fishermen and whale-ships and sand dunes and everything." She wished that she had a little cane to carry. He broke off a willow-branch. "'My, you're strong!' she said. "'No, not very. I wish there was a Y.M.C.A. here so I could take up regular exercise. I used to think I could do pretty good acrobatics if I had a chance.' "'I'm sure you could. You're unusually lithe for a large man. Oh, no, not so very. But I wish we had a Y.M. It would be dandy to have lectures and everything, and I'd like to take a class in improving the memory. I believe a fellow ought to go on educating himself and improving his mind, even if he is in business, don't you, Vida? I guess I'm kind of fresh to call you Vida." I've been calling you Ray for weeks. He wondered why she sounded tart. He helped her down the bank to the edge of the lake, but dropped her hand abruptly, as they sat on a willow log, and he brushed her sleeve. He delicately moved over and murmured, Oh, excuse me, accident. She stared at the mud-brown, chilly water, the floating gray reeds. You look so thoughtful, he said. She threw out her hands. I am. Will you kindly tell me what's the use of... anything? Oh, don't mind me, I'm a moody old hen. Tell me about your plan for getting a partnership in the Bontan. I do think you're right. Harry Haydock and that mean old Simons ought to give you one." He hymned the old unhappy wars in which he had been Achilles and the mellifluous Nestor, yet gone his righteous ways unheeded by the cruel kings. Why, if I've told him once, I've told him a dozen times! To get in a sideline of lightweight pants for gent summer wear, and of course here they go and let a cheap kike like Rifkin beat them to it and grab the trade right off 'em, and then Harry said, "You know how Harry is. Maybe he don't mean to be grouchy, but he's such a sore head." He gave her a hand to rise. If you don't mind, I think a fellow is awful if a lady goes on a walk with him and she can't trust him and he tries to flirt with her and all. I'm sure you're highly trustworthy, she snapped, and she sprang up without his aid. Then smiling excessively, uh, don't you think Harold sometimes fails to appreciate Dr. will's ability Three Ray habitually asked her about his window trimming, the display of the new shoes, the best music for the entertainment at the Eastern star and, though he was recognized as a professional authority on what the town called Gents Furnishings, about his own clothes. She persuaded him not to wear the small bow ties which made him look like an elongated Sunday-school scholar. Once she burst out, "'Ray, I could shake you! Do you know you're too apologetic? You always appreciate other people too much. You fuss over Carol Kennicott, when she has some crazy theory that we all ought to turn anarchists or live on figs and nuts or something. And you listen when Harry Haydock tries to show off and talk about turnovers and credits and things you know lots better than he does. Look folks in the eye! Glare at em! Talk deep! You're the smartest man in town, if you only knew it! You are!" He could not believe it. He kept coming back to her for confirmation. He practiced glaring and talking deep. But he circuitously hinted to Vida that when he tried to look Harry Haydock in the eye, Harry had inquired, ''What's the matter with you, Ramey? Got a pain?'' But afterward, Harry had asked about can not socks in a manner which, Ray felt, was somehow different from his former condescension. They were sitting on the squat yellow satin settee in the boarding-house parlor. As Ray re-announced that he simply wouldn't stand it many more years if Harry didn't give him a partnership, his gesticulating hand touched Vida's shoulders. Oh, excuse me, he pleaded. It's all right. Well, I think I must be running up to my room. Headache, she said briefly. 4. Ray and she had stopped at Dyer's for a hot chocolate on their way home from the movies that March evening. Vida speculated. Do you know that I may not be here next year? What do you mean? With her fragile narrow nails she smoothed the glass slab which formed the top of the round table at which they sat. She peeped through the glass at the perfume boxes of black and gold and citron in the hollow table. She looked about at shelves of red rubber water-bottles, pale yellow sponges, wash-rags with blue borders, hair-brushes of polished sherry backs. She shook her head like a nervous medium coming out of a trance, stared at him unhappily, demanded, "'Why should I stay here?' and I must make up my mind. Now! Time to renew our teaching contracts for next year. I think I'll go teach in some other town. Everybody here is tired of me. I might as well go. Before folks come out and say they're tired of me. I have to decide tonight. I might as well. Oh, no matter. Come, let's skip. It's late." She sprang up, ignoring his wail of, Vida, wait, sit down! Gosh, I'm flabbergasted! Gee, Vida!" She marched out. While he was paying his check she got ahead. He ran after her, blubbering, Vida, wait! In the shade of the lilacs in front of the goggling house he came up with her, stayed her flight by a hand on her shoulder. Oh, don't, don't! What does it matter? she begged. She was sobbing, her soft wrinkly lids soaked with tears. Who cares for my affection or help? I might as well drift off, forgotten! Oh, Ray, please don't hold me! Let me go! I'll just decide not to renew my contract here and—and drift—way off!" His hand was steady on her shoulder. She dropped her head, rubbed the back of his hand with her cheek. They were married in June. V. They took the old Jensen house. It's small," said Vida, but it's got the dearest vegetable garden, and I love having time to get near to nature for once. Though she became Vida Weatherspoon technically, and though she certainly had no ideals about the independence of keeping her name, she continued to be known as Vida Sherwin. She had resigned from the school, but she kept up one class in English. She bustled about on every committee of the Thanatopsis. She was always popping into the restroom to make Mrs. Nodelquist sweep the floor. She was appointed to the library board to succeed Carol. She taught the senior girl's class in the Episcopal Sunday School, and tried to revive the King's daughters. She exploded into self-confidence and happiness. Her draining thoughts were by marriage turned into energy. She became daily and visibly more plump, and though she chattered as eagerly, she was less obviously admiring of marital bliss less sentimental about babies, sharper in demanding that the entire town share her reforms, the purchase of a park, the compulsory cleaning of backyards. She penned Harry Haydock at his desk in the Bon Ton. She interrupted his joking. She told him that it was Ray who had built up the shoe department and men's department. She demanded that he be made a partner. Before Harry could answer, she threatened that Ray and she would start a rival shop. I'll clerk behind the counter myself and a certain party is all ready to put up the money." She rather wondered who the certain party was. Ray was made a one-sixth partner. He became a glorified floor-walker, greeting the men with new poise, no longer coyly subservient to pretty women. When he was not affectionately coercing people into buying things they did not need, he stood at the back of the store glowing, abstracted, feeling masculine as he recalled the tempestuous surprises of love revealed by Vida. The only remnant of Vida's identification of herself with Carol was a jealousy when she saw Kennicott and Ray together, and reflected that some people might suppose that Kennicott was his superior. She was sure that Carol thought so, and she wanted to shriek, ''You needn't try to gloat! I wouldn't have your pokey old husband! He hasn't one single bit of Ray's spiritual nobility. End of chapter 21. Chapter 22 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 22 1 The greatest mystery about a human being is not his reaction to sex or praise, but the manner in which he contrives to put in twenty-four hours a day. It is this which puzzles the longshoreman about the clerk, the Londoner about the bushman. It was this which puzzled Carol in regard to the married Vida. Carol herself had the baby, a larger house to care for, all the telephone calls for Kennicott when he was away. And she read everything while Vida was satisfied with newspaper headlines. But after detached brown years in boarding houses, Vida was hungry for housework, for the most pottering detail of it. She had no maid nor wanted one. She cooked, baked, swept, washed supper cloths, with the triumph of a chemist in a new laboratory. To her the hearth was veritably the altar. When she went shopping, she hugged the cans of soup and she bought a mop or a side of bacon as though she were preparing for a reception. She knelt beside a bean-sprout and crooned, "'I raised this with my own hands. I brought this new life into the world!' "'I love her for being so happy,' Carol brooded. "'I ought to be that way. I worship the baby, but the housework—oh, I suppose I'm fortunate, so much better off than farm-women on a new clearing or people in a slum.' it has not yet been recorded that any human being has gained a very large or permanent contentment from meditation upon the fact that he is better off than others. In Carol's own twenty-four hours a day she got up, dressed the baby, had breakfast, talked to Oscarina about the day's shopping, put the baby on the porch to play, went to the butchers to choose between steak and pork chops, bathed the baby, nailed up a shelf, had dinner, put the baby to bed for a nap, paid the iceman, Read for an hour, took the baby out for a walk, called on Vida, had supper, put the baby to bed, darned socks, listened to Kennicott's yawning comment on what a fool Dr. McGannum was to try to use that cheap x ray outfit of his on an epithelioma, repaired a frock, drowsily heard Kennicott stoke the furnace, tried to read a page of Thorstein Veblen, and the day was gone. Except when Hugh was vigorously naughty, or whiny, or laughing, or saying, I like my chair with thrilling maturity, she was always enfeebled by loneliness. She no longer felt superior about that misfortune. She would gladly have been converted to Vita's satisfaction in Gopher Prairie and mopping the floor. Two. Carol drove through an astonishing number of books from the public library and from city shops. Kennicott was at first uncomfortable over her disconcerting habit of buying them. A book was a book. And if you had several thousand of them right here in the library, free, why the dickens should you spend your good money?" After worrying about it for two or three years, he decided that this was one of the funny ideas which he had caught as a librarian and from which she would never entirely recover. The authors whom she read were most of them frightfully annoyed by the Vita Sherwins. They were young American sociologists, young English realists, Russian horrorists, Anatole France, Roland, Nexo, Wells, Shaw, Key, Edgar Lee Masters, Theodore Dreiser, Sherwood Anderson, Henry Mencken, and all the other subversive philosophers and artists whom women were consulting everywhere in petite curtained studios in New York, in Kansas farmhouses, San Francisco drawing rooms, Alabama schools for Negroes. From them she got the same confused desire which the million other women felt the same determination to be class conscious without discovering the class of which she was to be conscious. Certainly her reading precipitated her observations of Main Street, of Gopher Prairie and of the several adjacent Gopher Prairies which she had seen on drives with Kennicott. In her fluid thought certain convictions appeared, jaggedly a fragment of an impression at a time, while she was going to sleep or manicuring her nails or waiting for Kennicott. These convictions she presented to Vita Sherwin, Vita Weatherspoon, beside a radiator, over a bowl of not-very-good walnuts and pecans from Uncle Whittier's grocery, on an evening when both Kennicott and Ramey had gone out of town with other officers of the ancient and affiliated Order of Spartans, to inaugurate a new chapter at Wacaman. Vita had come to the house for the night. She helped in putting Hugh to bed, sputtering the while about his soft skin. Then they talked till midnight. What Carol said that evening, what she was passionately thinking, was also emerging in the minds of women in ten thousand Gopher Prairies. Her formulations were not pat solutions, but visions of a tragic futility. She did not utter them so compactly that they could be given in her words. They were roughened with, Well, you see, and If you get what I mean, and I don't know that I'm making myself clear. But they were definite enough and indignant enough. Three. In reading popular stories and seeing plays, asserted Carol, she had found only two traditions of the American small town. The first tradition, repeated in scores of magazines every month, is that the American village remains the one sure abode of friendship, honesty, and clean sweet marriageable girls. Therefore, all men who succeed in painting in Paris, or finance in New York, at last become weary of smart women return to their native towns, assert that cities are vicious, marry their childhood sweethearts, and, presumably, joyously abide in those towns until death. The other tradition is that the significant features of all villages are whiskers, iron dogs upon lawns, gold bricks, checkers, jars of gilded cattails, and shrewd, comic old men, who are known as hicks, and who ejaculate, "'Wall I swan!' This altogether admirable tradition rules the vaudeville stage, facetious illustrations and syndicated newspaper humor, but out of actual life it passed forty years ago. Carroll's small town thinks not in hoss-swapping, but in cheap motor-cars, telephones, ready-made clothes, silos, alfalfa, kodaks, phonographs, leather-upholstered Morris-chairs, bridge-prizes, oil-stocks, motion pictures, Land deals, unread sets of Mark Twain, and a chaste version of national politics. With such a small-town life a Kennicott or a Champ Perry is content, but there are also hundreds of thousands, particularly women and young men, who are not at all content. The more intelligent young people, and the fortunate widows, flee to the cities with agility, and despite the fictional tradition, resolutely stay there, seldom returning even for holidays. The most protesting patriots of the towns leave them in old age, if they can afford it, and go to live in California or in the cities. The reason, Carroll insisted, is not a whiskered rusticity, it is nothing so amusing. It is an unimaginatively standardized background, a sluggishness of speech and manners, a rigid ruling of the spirit by the desire to appear respectable. It is contentment, the contentment of the quiet dead. Who are scornful of the living for their restless walking. It is negation canonized as the one positive virtue. It is the prohibition of happiness. It is slavery self sought and self defended. It is dullness made God. A savorless people, gulping tasteless food and sitting afterward, coatless and thoughtless, in rocking chairs prickly with inane decorations, listening to mechanical music. Saying mechanical things about the excellence of Ford automobiles, and viewing themselves as the greatest race in the world. 4. She had inquired as to the effect of this dominating dullness upon foreigners. She remembered the feeble exotic quality to be found in the first generation Scandinavians. She recalled the Norwegian fair at the Lutheran church, to which B. had taken her. There, in the Bondestua, the replica of a Norse farm kitchen, pale women in scarlet jackets embroidered with gold thread and colored beads, in black skirts with a line of blue, green-striped aprons, and ridged caps very pretty to set off a fresh face, had served Ramagrad oglefsa, sweet cakes and sour milk pudding spiced with cinnamon. For the first time in Gopher Prairie Carol had found novelty. She had reveled in the mild foreignness of it. But she saw these Scandinavian women zealously exchanging their spiced puddings and red jackets for fried pork chops and congealed white blouses, trading the ancient Christmas hymns of the Fjords for She's My Jazzland Cutie, being Americanized into uniformity, and in less than a generation losing in the grayness whatever pleasant new customs they might have added to the life of the town. Their sons finished the process. In ready-made clothes and ready-made high-school phrases they sank into propriety, and the sound American customs had absorbed without one trace of pollution another alien invasion. And along with these foreigners she felt herself being ironed into glossy mediocrity, and she rebelled in fear. The respectability of gopher prairies, said Carol, is reinforced by vows of poverty and chastity in the matter of knowledge. Except for a half-dozen in each town. The citizens are proud of that achievement of ignorance which it is so easy to come by. To be intellectual or artistic, or, in their own word, to be highbrow, is to be priggish and of dubious virtue. Large experiments in politics and in cooperative distribution, ventures requiring knowledge, courage and imagination, do originate in the West and Middle West, but they are not of the towns, they are of the farmers. If these heresies are supported by the townsmen, it is only by occasional teachers, doctors, lawyers, the labor unions and workmen like Miles Bjornstam, who are punished by being mocked as cranks, as half-baked parlour socialists. The editor and the rector preach at them. The cloud of serene ignorance submerges them in unhappiness and futility." V. Here, Vida observed, yes, well, do you know, I've always thought that Ray would have made a wonderful rector. He has what I call an essentially religious soul. My, he'd have read the service beautifully. I suppose it's too late now, but as I tell him, he can also serve the world by selling shoes, and—I wonder if we ought to have family prayers." Six. Doubtless all small towns, in all countries, in all ages, Carroll admitted, have a tendency to be not only dull, but mean, bitter, infested with curiosity. In France or Tibet, quite as much as in Wyoming or Indiana, these timidities are inherent in isolation. But a village in a country which is taking pains to become altogether standardized and pure, which aspires to succeed Victorian England as the chief mediocrity of the world, is no longer merely provincial, no longer downy and restful in its leaf-shadowed ignorance. It is a force seeking to dominate the earth, to drain the hills and sea of color, to set dante at boosting Gopher Prairie and to dress the high gods in classy college clothes. Sure of itself, it bullies other civilizations as a traveling salesman in a brown derby conquers the wisdom of China and tax advertisements of cigarettes over arches for centuries dedicated to the sayings of Confucius. Such a society functions admirably in the large production of cheap automobiles, dollar watches and safety razors, But it is not satisfied until the entire world also admits that the end and joyous purpose of living is to ride in flivvers, to make advertising pictures of dollar watches and in the twilight to sit talking not of love and courage, but of the convenience of safety razors. And such a society, such a nation, is determined by the gopher prairies. The greatest manufacturer is but a busier Sam Clark, and all the rotund senators and presidents are village lawyers and bankers grown nine feet tall. Though a gopher prairie regards itself as a part of the great world, compares itself to Rome and Vienna, It will not acquire the scientific spirit, the international mind, which would make it great. It picks at information which will visibly procure money or social distinction. Its conception of a community ideal is not the grand manner, the noble aspiration, the fine aristocratic pride, but cheap labor for the kitchen and rapid increase in the price of land. It plays at cards on greasy oilcloth in a shanty and does not know that prophets are walking and talking on the terrace. If all the Provincials were as kindly as Champ Perry and Sam Clark, there would be no reason for desiring the town to seek great traditions. It is the Harry Hadocks, the Dave Dyers, the Jackson Elders, small busy men crushingly powerful in their common purpose, viewing themselves as men of the world but keeping themselves men of the cash register and the comic film, who make the town a sterile oligarchy. Seven. She had sought to be definite in analyzing the surface ugliness of the gopher prairies. She asserted that it was a matter of universal similarity, of flimsiness of construction, so that the towns resembled frontier camps, of neglect of natural advantages, so that the hills are covered with brush, the lakes shut off by railroads and the creeks lined with dumping-grounds, of depressing sobriety of color, rectangularity of buildings, an excessive breadth and straightness of the gashed streets, so that there is no escape from gales and from sight of the grim sweep of land, nor any windings to coax the loiterer along, while the breath which would be majestic in an avenue of palaces makes the low shabby shops creeping down the typical main street the more mean by comparison. The universal similarity—that is the physical expression of the philosophy of dull safety nine-tenths of the American towns are so alike that it is the completest boredom to wander from one to another. Always west of Pittsburgh, and often east of it, there is the same lumber yard, the same railroad station, the same Ford garage, the same creamery, the same box-like houses and two-story shops. The new, more conscious houses are alike in their very attempts at diversity. The same bungalows, the same square houses of stucco or tapestry brick. The shops show the same standardized, nationally-advertised wares. The newspapers of sections three thousand miles apart have the same syndicated features. The boy in Arkansas displays just such a flamboyant ready-made suit as is found on just such a boy in Delaware, both of them iterate the same slang phrases from the same sporting pages, and if one of them is in college and the other is a barber, no one may surmise which is which." If Kennicott were snatched from Gopher Prairie and instantly conveyed to a town leagues away, he would not realize it. He would go down apparently the same Main Street. Almost certainly it would be called Main Street. In the same drug store he would see the same young man serving the same ice-cream soda to the same young woman with the same magazine and phonograph records under her arm. Not till he had climbed to his office and found another sign on the door another Dr. Kennicott inside, would he understand that something curious had presumably happened. Finally, behind all her comments, Carol saw the fact that the prairie towns no more exist to serve the farmers who are their reason of existence than do the great capitals, they exist to fatten on the farmers, to provide for the townsmen large motors and social preferment. And unlike the capitals, they do not give to the district in return for usury a stately and permanent centre but only this ragged camp. It is a parasitic Greek civilization, minus the civilization." There we are then, said Carroll. The remedy, is there any? Criticism, perhaps, for the beginning of the beginning? Oh, there's nothing that attacks the tribal god Mediocrity that doesn't help a little, and probably there's nothing that helps very much. Perhaps some day the farmers will build and own their own market-towns. Think of the club they could have. But I'm afraid I haven't any reform program. Not any more. The trouble is spiritual, and no league or party can enact a preference for gardens rather than dumping grounds. There's my confession. Well?" In other words, all you want is perfection? Yes, why not? How you hate this place! How can you expect to do anything with it if you haven't any sympathy? but I have, and affection, or else I wouldn't fume so. I've learned that Gopher Prairie isn't just an eruption on the prairie, as I thought first, but as large as New York. In New York I wouldn't know more than forty or fifty people, and I know that many here. Go on, say what you're thinking." Well, my dear, if I did take all your notions seriously, it would be pretty discouraging. Imagine how a person would feel, after working hard for years and helping to build up a nice town, to have you airily flit in and simply say, rotten, think that's fair?" Why not? It must be just as discouraging for the Gopher Prairie to see Venice and make comparisons. It would not. I imagine gondolas are kind of nice to ride in, but we've got better bathrooms. But—my dear— You're not the only person in this town who has done some thinking for herself, although, pardon my rudeness, I'm afraid you think so. I'll admit we lack some things. Maybe our theater isn't as good as shows in Paris. All right. I don't want to see any foreign culture suddenly forced on us, whether it's street-planning or table-manners or crazy Communistic ideas." Vita sketched what she termed, practical things that will make a happier and prettier town but that do belong to our life, that actually are being done. Of the Thanatopsis club she spoke, of the restroom, the fight against mosquitoes, the campaign for more gardens and shade-trees and sewers, matters not fantastic and nebulous and distant, but immediate and sure." Carol's answer was fantastic and nebulous enough. Yes, yes, I know. They're good but if I could put through all those reforms at once I'd still want startling, exotic things. Life is comfortable and clean enough here already. And so secure. What it needs is to be less secure, more eager. The civic improvements which I'd like the Thanatopsis to advocate are Strindberg plays, and classic dancers, exquisite legs beneath tulle, and—I can see him so clearly—a thick, black-bearded, cynical Frenchman, who would sit about and drink and sing opera and tell bawdy stories and laugh at our proprieties and quote Rabelais and not be ashamed to kiss my hand. Huh! Not sure about the rest of it, but I guess that's what you and all the other discontented young women really want—some stranger kissing your hand." At Carol's gasp the old squirrel-like Vida darted out and cried, Oh, my dear, don't take that too seriously. I just meant—I know, you just meant it go on, be good for my soul! Isn't it funny, here we all are, me trying to be good for Gopher prairie soul and Gopher prairie trying to be good for my soul! What are my other sins? Oh, there's plenty of them! Possibly, some day, we shall have your fat cynical Frenchman—horrible, sneering, tobacco-stained object, ruining his brains and his digestion with vile liquor—but thank heaven, for a while we'll manage to keep busy with our lawns and pavements! you see, these things really are coming. The thanatopsis is getting somewhere, and you," her tone italicized the words, to my great disappointment, are doing less, not more, than people you laugh at. Sam Clark on the school board is working for better school ventilation. Ella Stowbody, whose elocuting you always think is so absurd, has persuaded the railroad to share the expense of a parked space at the station to do away with that vacant lot you sneer so easily. I'm sorry, but I do think there's something essentially cheap in your attitude, especially about religion. If you must know, you're not a sound reformer at all. You're an impossibilist. And you give up too easily. You gave up on the new city hall, the anti-fly campaign, club papers, the library board, the dramatic association, just because we didn't graduate into Ibsen the very first thing you want perfection all at once. Do you know what the finest thing you've done is, aside from bringing Hugh into the world? It was the help you gave Doctor Will during Baby Welfare Week. You didn't demand that each baby be a philosopher and artist before you weighed him, as you do with the rest of us. And now I'm afraid perhaps I'll hurt you. We're going to have a new school building in this town, in just a few years, and we'll have it without one bit of help or interest from you." Professor Mott and I and some others have been dinging away at the moneyed men for years. We didn't call on you because you would never stand the pound pound pounding year after year without one bit of encouragement. And we've won. I've got the promise of everybody who counts that just as soon as war conditions permit they'll vote the bonds for the schoolhouse. And we'll have a wonderful building, lovely brown brick with big windows and agricultural and manual training departments. When we get it, that'll be my answer to all your theories." I'm glad, and I'm ashamed I haven't had any part in getting it. But please don't think I'm unsympathetic if I ask one question. Will the teachers in the hygienic new building go on informing the children that Persia is a yellow spot on the map and Caesar the title of a book of grammatical puzzles? Eight. Vida was indignant. Carol was apologetic. They talked for another hour the eternal Mary and Martha, an immoralist Mary and a reformist Martha. It was Vida who conquered. The fact that she had been left out of the campaign for the new school building disconcerted Carol. She laid her dreams of perfection aside. When Vita asked her to take charge of a group of campfire girls, she obeyed, and had definite pleasure out of the Indian dances and ritual and costumes. She went more regularly to the Thanatopsis. With Vida as lieutenant and unofficial commander, she commanded for a village nurse to attend poor families, raised the fund herself, saw to it that the nurse was young and strong and amiable and intelligent. Yet all the while she beheld the burly, cynical Frenchman and the diaphanous dancers as clearly as the child sees its airborne playmates. She relished the campfire girls, not because, in Vida's words, this scout training will help so much to make them good wives, but because she hoped that the Sioux dances would bring subversive color into their dinginess. She helped Ella Stowbody to set out plants in the tiny triangular park at the railroad station. She squatted in the dirt with a small curved trowel and the most decorous of gardening gauntlets. She talked to Ella about the public-spiritedness of fuchsias and cannas and she felt that she was scrubbing a temple deserted by the gods and empty even of incense and the sound of chanting. Passengers looking from trains saw her as a village woman of fading prettiness, incorruptible virtue, and no abnormalities. The baggage man heard her say, Oh yes, I do think it will be a good example for the children, and all the while she saw herself running garlanded through the streets of Babylon. Planting led her to botanizing. She never got much farther than recognizing the tiger-lily and the wild-rose, but she rediscovered Hugh. "'What does the buttercup say, Mommy?' he cried, his hand full of straggly grasses, his cheek gilded with pollen. She knelt to embrace him. She affirmed that he made life more than full. She was altogether reconciled—for an hour. But she awoke at night to hovering death. She crept away from the hump of bedding that was Kennicott tiptoed into the bathroom and, by the mirror in the door of the medicine cabinet, examined her pallid face. Wasn't she growing visibly older in ratio as Vita grew plumper and younger? Wasn't her nose sharper? Wasn't her neck granulated? She stared and choked. She was only thirty. But the five years since her marriage—had they not gone by as hastily and stupidly as though she had been under ether? would time not slink past till death?" She pounded her fist on the cool enameled rim of the bathtub and raged mutely against the indifferent gods. "'I don't care. I won't endure it. They lie so. Vida and Will and Aunt Bessie. They tell me I ought to be satisfied with Hugh and a good home and planting seven nasturtiums in a station garden. I am I. When I die—' the world will be annihilated, as far as I'm concerned. I am I. I'm not content to leave the sea and the ivory towers to others. I want them for me. Damn Vida! Damn all of them! Do they think they can make me believe that a display of potatoes at Howland and Gould's is enough beauty and strangeness?" End of chapter Twenty Two.